think John's idea of keeping a secret was to tell one person at a time. <laughs> Within hours. Within hours, yeah. So John, once he said to me, I think it was that night, he said, the most secure prisons in the world are the ones we construct in our own minds. I realized my, you know, my background played into why this was difficult and being raised Catholic. And, but in the end, uh, I had constructed this, you know, it wasn't a closet. I was, I was in a safe, <laughs> a vault inside a closet. And it was all of my own making. And it was a long, kind of painful process to sort of realize that the door was open the whole time. <laughs> I just needed to walk through it. Well, this is another episode of Bammer and Me, a podcast series. My guest today is a longtime friend, Steve Gillen, I believe an American historian as opposed to just an historian, uh, who I've known, and I'll let him describe how we met uh, for quite a while. If you don't mind, I'll point out in advance that by nature, you're a fairly reserved person. So I'm really honored you're entrusting me as your friend, to conduct this conversation in a thoughtful way. Thank you for joining us here today, Steve. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me. You're right. I am reserved, and you're the only person I would have this conversation with, so. I'm honored. Well, why don't we start with me asking you to share your memory of how we met and when? Well, you know, I've been, I've been thinking about this for a while. I think it, I was on sabbatical, so it was either... 1988 or 1992. I think it was 1992. And um, I was living in the city uh, that year. Uh, and uh, a mutual friend threw a party to introduce me to a lot of his friends, one of whom was Mike Balban. Was this, so, was this Mark? This is Mark Oval. Yeah. So we met at Mark's party, and and I I think about those days, and I think one of the biggest challenges that young people in our community have is they they feel isolated and alone when they go through the coming out process, and I feel so fortunate because during those early years, I met this extraordinary group of friends of, of whom you were one who are still among my closest friends now. And we're all kind of in the same, I think you were a little further advanced than most of us in terms of the process. Uh, you were actually the wise man, you know, who uh, we, the rest of us were, in, you know, we were just really inching our way out. And we, we were fortunate because we had each other during that time. And so I look back on it and I realize how lucky I was and how privileged I was to, to be able to meet a group of like-minded people who are going through the same process at the same time. Well, you know, it's funny. I grew up as the oldest child in a family with lovable parents, but they weren't very good parents. And so I ended up parenting my younger siblings, which meant that as a form of imprinting, I've always been most comfortable with people somewhat younger than me, which is why I ended up kind of being slightly elder statesman in the group you're talking about, slightly ahead of everyone else, in, maybe in the process, which worked out to all our benefits. We were all very comfortable in our roles. So I want to talk first about where you grew up and what your upbringing was like, and then talk about how that brought you to where you met us and why your coming out was relatively late for young gay men of that era. So I grew up uh, outside of Philadelphia in a working class Irish Catholic community uh, and family. I grew up, um, I was an athlete and I always wanted to be a professional baseball player. So I went to college. I, I was a lousy student in high school. I failed three out of five subjects my senior year. It was a class of about 850 students. I think I ranked around 750. I uh, was admitted to a small college, Widener University. It was Widener College then, on probation, because I just always thought I was going to play baseball. And I was five foot eight. You know, I had a 
70 mile an hour fastball, and that's with hurricane force winds at my back. But, you know, I was I was delusional. Looking back on it now, I realize it. And when I went to college, I made the, the varsity as a freshman, and I played my freshman year. And in my sophomore year, I remember having this epiphany. I was taking a class in medieval history. I had no idea what medieval history was. I, I was in the class because all the classes that everyone wanted had already filled up. So I got assigned to medieval history. For me, medieval history was everything before 1945. I didn't know that, you know, it was a, I didn't know what it actually meant. So it was a classroom of about um, 18 students. And we had this young, dynamic professor. And I remember sitting in the back of the room one day, he had given us a reading assignment. And I used to sit with my, I had my varsity baseball jacket on and I was trying to teach myself a circle change. Uh, so I would, I would do my grips in my pocket. And I was listening to my, my fellow students talk about the stuff that I had read the night before too. And I remember thinking to myself, like, why can't I talk like that? Like, why can't I articulate my thoughts? And I, just, I was like, my God, I'm never going to be a professional baseball player. I, you know, I'm barely making the varsity at this Division Three baseball uh, school. So it was, that, it was a turning point in my life. I, I remember I got up at the end of the class and I walked to the gym and I turned in my baseball uniform. And I went to the library probably for the first time. And what happened over the next couple of years is that I discovered I had this enormous capacity for learning. And my, you know, I realized that my future was going to depend on my untested brain and not my tired old right arm. And I was fortunate to be at a small private college that was able to grow with me. So the, the faculty created an honors program. I was the only one in it. So I would take classes with everyone else and then do extra work and then do, have to do extra papers and, and do a final thesis. And I realized I loved it. I realized I really liked learning. I liked reading. I liked writing. And so I decided to go to grad school. So I went to Brown University. Uh, I was admitted in, this, in 1979, the fall of 1979. Um, was that into the master's program? It was a PhD program. So if you go into a PhD program, you're automatically given a master's after your first year of work. I always tell students never, you know, if you want to get a master's degree, apply to a PhD program and just leave after the first year. There's also no funding for master's degrees, but anyhow. So, and then again, I did really well at Brown and in many ways it changed my life because of the people I met and also because of the sort of exposure to ideas and the training that I got. Two, two thoughts here. One is a question. So your barely passing grades in high school were strictly the result of, of a lack of application and a lack of curiosity? I never read a book. I had no curiosity, uh, no interest in anything other than playing baseball and, you know, going to the beach during the summers and um, and working. Well, that's a pretty impressive commentary, isn't it? To realize the difference where we may end up in life, how we might perform, yeah. strictly based on our orientation and not our abilities. Yeah, although I have to tell you one thing I have to, uh, sort of which I thought about later was uh, one year the um, the Phillies had this, Philadelphia Phillies had this deal where if you got straight A's, you would get like six free tickets to a Phillies game. But you had to have straight A's for uh, a quarter. And of course, I got hundreds and everything for that quarter. <laughs> but I, I applied myself, I got my tickets, and then I went right back to, you know, the, the way the school was set up is the lowest grade they could give you for for calculating your average was a 60. So I was getting 40s and 50s, but they had to use a 60 and I knew I had like 94s. So I would I didn't care what my final average was. But that's the only time I should have known like, oh, maybe I do have some capacity for learning because I when I wanted to, I turned it on and, and did extremely well. And the second thing is, um, for those who aren't aware, Brown University is my alma mater. I was did my undergrad there. My parents went there. My sister went there. And so that's another thing we have in common. Yeah, yeah. yeah then I just, I, I, so I started on this track. I, I got a job at Yale right after grad school. And it was while I was there that I was going through this process. That's when I met you. I started, I finished my PhD in the summer spring of 85 and started teaching in the fall of 1985 at Yale. I was there for 10 years. And there were the years when I was really kind of grappling with, 
you know, the whole sexuality thing. In terms of why it was difficult, you know, my, and I will talk about this a little later, but my, my former colleague and friend, John Boswell, great uh, gay historian, became a, a mentor to me at Brown. I, I had a funny story. I was, you know, I, John was you know, very openly gay. And, and when I was sort of going through this process, you know, I, we had become friends already. And I said to him, you know, John, I, there's some things I need to talk to you about. You know, would you have some time? And he said, sure. And he said, come over dinner, for dinner tonight. So we, I went over his house for dinner and, and I told him what I was going through. And he was wonderful, you know, and very supportive. <laughs> I said to him, John, just, you know, I don't want a lot of people to know this. And he said, of course, it's just between us. <laughs> so the next morning I get up and I'm walking to my office. I swear every gay guy in New Haven was waving at me. <laughs> I think John's idea of keeping a secret was to tell one person at a time. <laughs> Within hours. Within hours, yeah. Uh, so John, once he said to me, I think it was that night, he said, the most secure prisons in the world are the ones we construct in our own minds. I realized my, you know, my background played into why this was difficult and being raised Catholic. And but in the end, I had constructed this, you know, it wasn't a closet. I was I was in a safe. <laughs> a vault inside a closet. And it was all of my own making. And it took me, you know, it was a long kind of painful process to sort of realize that the door was open the whole time. <laughs> I just needed to walk through it. When did you first have an inkling deep inside, hidden within you that you denied and repressed that you might be attracted to boys? You know, probably high school. But, you know, it was, I was so repressed that I repressed everything, you know, and I think, and I think that one of the reasons why I was able to have some success during those years is that all that energy that would normally be put into, you know, trying to meet people and I read books. And all that energy went into to just blocking everything out and focusing on reading and learning. And and then there came a point where I just couldn't keep it in. I mean, I couldn't, no pun intended, I couldn't repress it any longer. Before we go into that, uh, just as an aside, John Boswell was a groundbreaking historian. I mean, I, I'm aware of two of his books, Christianity, Social Tolerance and Homosexuality in 1980 and same-sex unions in pre-modern Europe in 1994, where he uncovered that the Catholic Church, if I'm not mistaken, if what's the right word, not condoning, uh, was... Performing. Performing ceremonies yeah. between men within their yeah. churches in the, what, 1500s or so? Yeah. And he also showed that, you know, that the, the Catholic Church for its first few centuries did not condemn homosexuality. That was a... a product of the modern world, really. We say groundbreaking. I mean, it, it just turned everything on its head. And John was, John, I think, spoke, he could research in 18 languages. I think he spoke around 12. And there is no one who knew the Bible better than John. He was always trying to debate like bishops and Catholic theologians. They wouldn't go near him <laughs> uh, because uh, I think they were afraid of him. I, I met him, and Mark, the guy who introduced us, brought him to New York City with your help and had a, a, an evening in his apartment where maybe 25 of us sat, yeah. heard John speak, and I got to meet him because of you and Mark. Yeah. yeah. Well, what happened there was John, John was telling me he was lonely. You know, here's this brilliant scholar, you know, incredibly outgoing about guy, but he spent his, you know, his, his adult life in New Haven. He thought his circle of friends was fairly small. He'd only been to New York like five or six times in his life. And I was like, John, I got this wonderful group of friends. You know, I, they would love meeting you. And I think you would like them. And, you know, let me organize it. And Mark was wonderful because he, he offered John a, his apartment to stay. But I remember that seminar. It was difficult for me that evening because I saw the early signs that John was not well. Um, he would pass away from I, AIDS a couple of years later, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah, Christmas of 95. Yeah. And this was probably, I don't know, 93. Yeah. Right around there. Yes, I saw the first signs. I, I noticed it in the car ride down. 
that his chicken was a brilliant guy and incredibly articulate and he was focused and disciplined and i and the other thing he was very modest and one of the things i noticed is that John started talking about himself a lot, which is something he never did. And he kind of wandered on, on tangents. And then there were other things that started to happen like I heard about. And, and But that to me, that night was kind of sad for me, actually. It's amazing our different perspectives on the same evening. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think being in a seminar in a, in a room, you know, with John Boswell, he's kind of overwhelming for anybody. Yeah. But I had known John for 10 years at this point, um, and I noticed a change. So you had asked me when we were preparing for this uh, interview to remember to ask you the question. If you could have taken a pill that would have changed your sexual orientation when you were 30 or so, would you have done it? So I'm asking now. Well, that was the question that I asked back then. And I was shocked that one, another one of our mutual friends uh, who became a really dear friend and kind of a mentor to me, uh, David Currier, said, you know, I don't know if I would take it. And I'm like, are you crazy? Like, why would you put yourself through this? Like, why, why all this angst? I mean, why not you could just fit in and be like everybody else? And, and he was like, yeah, but that's the thing. Like, this is who I am. This is a part of who I am. And it's a part of my, my makeup. And, and I realized that I had the point where I felt like I, I knew I was completely comfortable with who I was, was when I answered that question and said, no, I wouldn't take it <laughs> because my sexuality is, is a part of my identity. It's a part of who I am. It's made me the person that I am. And, and I think in many ways, it's made me a better person. I certainly am far more empathetic to other people who feel marginalized or left out or secluded for whatever reason. I don't think I would have that same sense of empathy if I didn't also know what it was like to be an outsider. I'm blanking on his name right now, but a former head of the New York LGBT Center in the 90s who I interviewed for my podcast series, and I can't believe his name is escaping me, uh, wrote a book that I would be happy to share with anybody who contacts me that I read uh, that's amazing look at essentially what homosexuals add to society and how in many ways we are superior in terms of our empathy, in terms of our tendency to give charity, nursing, service industries, on and on and on. The fact that we treat women better, you know, the fact that it's, it's just kind of amazing. So what you're highlighting is the fact that when we're going through all the turmoil we do in terms of accepting yourself, all we do is feel the opprobrium. We don't understand what we have to offer and how that's going to come out later in our life. And I thought about your question in the lead up to this interview. It made me think of there are really two ways of looking at it. One is where you are in the process of coming out. So obviously, once you accept yourself and like who you are, then you're not going to want to take that pill. But it's also a commentary on where our society is in its own development at a given point in time. So the U.S. back when I was coming out in the 70s was, you know, pretty punitive for homosexuals. And, of course, the natural response, as in the movie Boys in the Band, would be to be bitchy and self-hating and want to just, you know, stop it if you could. And now, of course, for the most part, if you grow up in a, a normal accepting home, we don't feel that way. But then look at places like you know, Chechnya and Uganda and Afghanistan, where, of course, they would take that pill. So it's really a reflection on both the society and our own personal development. You know, one of the things I've learned, you know, I lived in Oklahoma for a while, that the our community sometimes can be kind of myopic. And we think everybody lives in San Francisco and New York and Chicago and Boston, where there are these small towns and rural places in the U.S., especially in the South, where you know the the homophobia is just as deep and profound as it was in the seventies in other places. So there's been a a divide, I think, in terms of the evolution, and it's like it divides along the same uh, partisan lines that everything else is dividing on now, which is education. You know, and those people who have a higher level of education are more accepting. Those who don't are the ones who are most opposed to the LGBTQ community, and and I just know from living in Oklahoma. I mean, you have no idea every day if you turn on your radio, 
all you hear is a preacher telling you you're going to die. And, you know, for some young person growing up, they still live in the same kind of environment that we grew up in. And I think that we can't lose sight of that, that, that the progress has been profound, but uneven. Well, it's so spotty. I mean, obviously, there are lots of gay men and lesbians and couples who choose to stay in the communities in which they were raised, which are the way you're discussing it. And a lot of people there who accept them, but an equal number who don't. And you can only look at what happened in the news this week when a straight mother of nine children who owned a store in a mountainside community in California and another store in urban L.A. was shot to death by uh, someone in their 20s who resented the pride flag that she flew out front. So it, it is a really horrific but uneven application yeah. of acceptance. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Tell me about, okay, so for someone who you came out at what age, would you say? Well, again, it's a, it depends on how you define coming out, right? The process started in my, around 30. Yeah. And for someone who didn't come out until 30 to the mid-30s, you've been fairly fortunate to have found yourself in two long-term relationships, both, interestingly, with with Brazilian-born men. That's shocking. I don't know how, it's just a coincidence, I'm sure. (laughs) Uh, Can you share with us a bit about your relationship history, given that it started? Yeah. Well, I've I've been fortunate. I've been in three relationships. Um, The first was um, a guy I met during Gay Pride Week, 1994, I was leaving to go to Oxford, where I would live for the next three years. And I, it was at one of these events during Gay Pride, a reception. And, you know, it's one of these people you look across the room and you see, and they're like, I, you know, they're beautiful. I, I have to meet that person. It's really interesting. Uh, he was not Brazilian. He was Puerto Rican. <laughs> <laughs> and so we dated for a while. It was odd because I was living in England and, and he was living in Jersey City. But it was, it was interesting. It was fun. I, I, we're still friends. I still stay in touch. But when I, when I was at Oxford, I met a wonderful Brazilian guy, Joan, who we met at a bar in London. Which they were Brief Encounter. It was called The Brief Encounter. And he was studying English in London. And I convinced him to come to Oxford and study at Oxford. And he did. So we lived together for a while. Uh, then we moved together to Oklahoma. And it kind of fizzled out. He's from Sao Paulo. So Norman, Oklahoma was just not, you know, when the big city is Oklahoma City, you know, it's just, he was definitely a fish out of water. So we ended up doing the long distance, somewhat long distance. I was living in Norman. He was in Dallas. But by this point, I'm commuting to New York almost every week to do History Channel stuff. So it just, we grew apart and and the relationship ended. We started, I met him in 96, I would say. And uh, we lasted for about eight years, I would say. And then I was single for a couple of years. And then I met my now husband. Um, and we've been together for 17 years. You know, uh, I'm attracted to younger men. What's, what is so, what is the age gap? 21. 21. You know, I've, 21. I've written about this, and you and I have discussed it. I did a, a survey on my Instagram page. And maybe 200 people responded, 250. And I asked, if you're in a long-term relationship, what is the age gap between you and your partner? And whereas I would have thought back when I was coming out in the 70s and 80s that most people dated people their own age or within a year or two, the median average was 8.5 years. And I know so many people these days that are 20, 25, 30 years apart. I had one respondent because I asked them, what's your age and how long have you been together and what is the age difference? One couple that was 43 years apart in age and had been together 22 years or something. Nice. So the point is, there's no longer the stigma. Yeah. And there's also more of an interest in the different ages, particularly younger guys looking at older men, because when we were coming out, we were understandably self-loathing. We weren't in shape. 
We were we we drank a lot as a Hey, speak for yourself. <laughs> well, I was in shape, but you know the people. Well, I was in shape. I was in shape. Yeah. But of course, we were the twenty-two-year-olds. I'm saying the right, right, the oh, right. Forty-year-olds right. weren't in shape. They drank after work. You know, there was a lot of bitchiness, like in boys in the band, and younger men would look at us like, "What do I need them for?" And mm. Maybe a little career help, but jobs were plentiful back then. Today, it's a very opposite situation where we've been through the wars. We've succeeded. We know how to get through life. We're very successful. We're in shape. We feel good about ourselves. And a lot of younger men at 23, 25 are getting out of school and can barely get an internship in the job world and don't know where they're headed. So the, whether it be friendship, mentorship, or relationship, there's just a lot more interest in, in people our age than there was back when we were growing up. Well, you've obviously thought about this a lot more than I have. <laughs> I just saw a beautiful Brazilian guy <laughs> starting, uh, and uh, the age thing doesn't really, the, if there's a problem, if there's an age difference, it's a difference in maturity. And and my partner's far more mature than I am. So he's actually the 60-some-year-old, and I'm the 40-year-old I'm the uh, when it comes to that. But yeah, that's my dating history. I um yeah, I, I'm I'm in love. So you're now 60? 66. 66. And boy, I got that wrong, didn't I? Uh, <laughs> but um, you just retired from your academic career as a teacher after 40 years, if I'm not mistaken. And you taught at both Brown while you were getting your PhD, Yale, Oxford, and Oklahoma. Did I miss any universities? No, no, I my... I filled in for a semester at Columbia, uh, but they're my three major homes. Right. And in Oklahoma, I was I I went there as a dean. I I left Oxford to go to Oklahoma to set up an honors college uh, for gifted students, and and I did that for five or six years, and then I started doing a lot more work for the History Channel. So so basically, you had your academic teaching career, you had right. your business media career with the History Channel, uh, and you've written a lot of books, but in part because of where you are in your life, you live most of the year in Miami, where you do all your writing, if I'm not mistaken, and your husband is still working and in a job in New York, so you split your time between the two of them, and when you were teaching, you were in Oklahoma a lot, so it, it kind of splits you asunder. As someone who's contemplating the idea of splitting my life between two locations, and indeed have been doing a bit of it during COVID, what's that like, the pros and the cons? Well, it's not as um, uh, as dramatic as, as it may seem. So I am, during COVID, we, we both lived together in Miami for over two years. Before that, I was using Miami more as a writing retreat. And given my other travels, so now that he had to return to the office, we're kind of figuring all this out now sure. and how this is going to work. I don't want to have a long distance relationship where I'm living, you know, in, in Miami and he's living here and he doesn't want that either. So we're working through that sure. now. I just think long distance relationships have challenges. You know, the, that, the, first, like, the first relationship I had in, in England, that was definitely turning into a long distance relationship. I think it just... It just creates distance. And whatever you have that physical distance, it also can, over time, seep into your relationship and creates an emotional distance. So I know people have done it and, and done it well. I don't think I would ever be able to do it well. I did it at the start of my 12-year relationship for 15 months between New York and Detroit, where my would-be partner lived until he moved to New York to be with me. And... It was not easy because I wanted to be with him and vice versa. And then 9-11 happened and I had worked on Wall Street in the world trade and across the street from it. I had a mutual friend of yours and mine who died in the windows in the world during that, that disaster. And my heart was crushed like a lot of New Yorkers for a long time by that event. And all I wanted was him there to hold. And meanwhile, I'm on the phone with him every night, moaning about that separation. So, uh, like you, I, I can't imagine living that way permanently. But I was just curious about the the whole idea of splitting oneself into multiple locations. Um, yeah. How did you get drawn 
to history as an area of interest and eventually as a career? I mean, you, you mentioned the first course, medieval history. Did that set the path right then, or did it take a while to figure out? And what was it about history that attracted you? That's a great question. A lot of times young people will ask, um, you know, what advice do you have for someone? And the, you know, the, the standard advice is you tell people to follow their dreams. And I don't think that's great advice. I tell people to to do what they're good at. Uh, and so for me, what happened is I was just good at history. I got a lot of positive feedback and it just it just snowballed. And out of that, I developed a love of history. But it wasn't love at first sight, certainly. Um, I just found that I was good at it. And since I was good at it and getting positive feedback, I put more and more energy and time into it. Um, and uh, and I think it helped. Uh, and that's what allowed me to grow as an historian. Well, you, it sounds like you had the serendipity to be good at something. And, it, yeah. and as you involved yourself in it and immersed yourself in it more deeply, your love of it grew. But if we look at the people we've known in life, the, the percentage of people that get to do what they love and make a living out yeah. of it is really, really yeah. rather minor. You, I tell most people is do something you can make a living at that you can tolerate. And it, <laughs> <laughs> right? If it's better than that, great. That's fair. <laughs> yeah, that sounds fair. You know, I had a roommate in college who's, uh, who he knew from the moment he was conceived that he was going to be a dentist. There was no doubt in his mind that's what he was going to do for his life. And he's a dentist. <laughs> Most of us don't have that certainty. You know, we just, like people, the, I always think it's unfair when people go to college, you know, they get asked, well, what are you going to study? Like, you don't know. You don't know what you're going to study. You, you figure it out, you know, as time goes on. And, you know, I think the, the problem today is because the job market is what it is and it's so competitive that, People, students, young kids, they feel the, the pressure to define themselves far earlier than they than they should and they need to. I uh, Just to go back to Yale, one other piece of advice that someone gave me is John Morton Blum was a brilliant 20th century historian at Yale. And he, one time, I was 28, I think, when I started teaching there. I was filled with the usual anxieties of, you know, a young person and some certainly someone who's in a, in the academy and and I was walking with him one day uh, on campus and I said something about you know I'm worried about this I'm worried about this in my future and he stopped he was a little guy I mean, I'm five foot eight and I towered over him <laughs> and he like put, very gently put his finger on my chest and he said son life begins at thirty I was like wait. My life hasn't started yet. I got two years to go. And it took me a long time. It wasn't until I got to be 50 that I realized what he meant. And what he meant was, and this was something that not everyone, but I think our generation had more opportunity to do, which is to explore, explore our identities, find out who we are. Most of us, we know what high school we're going to go to. We have very little choice. We may be able to decide what college we're going to, but in many families, there's the expectation that you go to college. So there's a ladder that you're climbing, and it's a ladder that society has constructed for you. But once you graduate from college, there's no ladders there. There's all these different paths to go. And I think that the people I find who are most fulfilled at my age are those who took time during their 20s to really explore themselves, to put themselves in, in uncomfortable situations, to, you know, to, to test their boundaries. And, and I mean that not, you know, in a dangerous way, but personally, professionally, just, you know, it's through those experiences that you really understand who you are. And then I think what Blum meant was that as you move into your 20s, then you have a pretty good idea of who you are. And then you pursue it for the next 35 years of your life or so. So, uh, that was, you know, the that was another great piece of advice that someone gave me that I didn't fully appreciate at the time, but I do now. That's wonderful insight. I, in my experience, most young people I know change jobs two or three times in their 20s while they're sorting yeah. out who they're going to be. Um, and that's good. Yeah. Um, how many books have you authored at by this point? And how did you decide which periods in American history or which issues to focus on? So I lost, I think I've done 12 now. And uh, so I study modern American political history. 
So that pretty much narrows down chronologically what it is that I do. So what is that start? Then, World War II? I mean, you know. No, for me, and practically it's been post-World War II. I've done some stuff before the, before um, World War II and the New Deal and, and uh, sort of post-war American liberalism been my major focus. But now, because I do books that I find things that I'm interested in, I get questions, I find questions that I want to answer. And that's, and my books tend to grow out of one another. So, you know, I wrote a book about the baby boom. Uh, and I realized in studying the baby boom that you can take really the history of post-war America and lay the baby boom over it. And it explains the, uh, the so then I wrote a, a book on America since 1945, that essentially used the, the baby boom sort of framework to, to tell the history of America since 1945. You know, I did a series of books called 24 Hours After. I just got interested in, I used to watch the show, you know, 24, remember the 24 Hours, which was called 24 with Kiefer Sutherland. And I said, I love the idea of bringing people into the moment. And I was thinking, you know, historians, we like, we paint these big pictures when in fact, you really want to understand how big decisions are made. You have to focus on the details. So I came up with this idea of just studying 24 hours. So it's a 24 hours from the time JFK is shot until 24 hours later, Lyndon Johnson's assuming the presidency. Uh, I did it with Pearl Harbor. You know, it begins with Roosevelt picking up the phone and being told that Japanese planes have attacked Pearl Harbor. And you take him through those next 24 hours. So they just, they tend to just grow out of each other. And I've never felt compelled to write books that, people expected me to write. I started out as a very traditional historian, writing very traditionally academic books with university presses. And I think this is where I, the History Channel had a big impact on me because I became more interested in telling stories than in making an argument. And so my books, for the last six books or so, have all been more popular type books. Perhaps your best-known book, because of its subject, is entitled America's Reluctant Prince, the life of John F. Kennedy Jr. And you brought special knowledge about John Kennedy Jr. to the project. Would you share with our listeners how you got to know John John Kennedy and describe how your lifelong close friendship with him developed? Well, first of all, if he heard you say that, he would say one John is enough. <laughs> he hated being called John John. The problem is when the whole world saw him at age three or I know. four, it, it imbued in us I know. an image of him, right? No, it's true. It's true. At one time, I was in an elevator with him, and someone said, John, John. And he goes, one John will suffice. <laughs> so it's actually a really funny story how I met John. So I was at Brown, and I was, I was assigned to be a teaching assistant in a class in modern American political history. And John was there. John arrived on campus uh, the same year I did. He had a little more fanfare, but I was there, too. <laughs> the professor, uh, this well-known uh, professor who became my mentor and really taught me how to be an historian, uh, would make all of his assistants t uh, give a lecture because his argument was, and it's very sound, that, that you're going to make a living teaching, you should start learning now. So we would meet before the class began. And I said, you know, I've always been interested in the 60s. I had studied European history as an undergraduate. Go to grad school, I'm studying American history. And I, I didn't know much about American history. And I had a vague notion about the 60s. And I said, I've been interested in the Kennedys. I'll give a lecture on the Kennedy administration. And I guess I wasn't even thinking about John being there or whether John was going to take a, I just, just, he wasn't that present in my mind that I really thought about it. So the class begins and I'm in the back of the room handing out syllabi, you know, these people coming in and I see this big mop of brown hair coming toward me. I'm like, nah, that's no way John's going to, it's going to take a class. It's going to cover his father. Actually, you know, it's John Kennedy's year. So I'm in this situation where I am going to give a public lecture for the first time in my life. It's going to be in front of 120-some bright undergraduates. The professor, who is a really demanding guy, uh, is going to be sitting there. Um, and I'm going to be giving a lecture about a man whose son is going to be sitting in front of me. So I was petrified. I can remember this so well. I had like three months. I think my lecture was in March. So, you know, we signed up in January. I spent about six weeks writing the lecture, and I still have it somewhere in storage. Uh, then I spent six weeks practicing it. I mean, before, when I get up in the morning, I would recite it. I'd go home at lunchtime, recite it, before dinner, after dinner, before I went to bed. I mean, I could do this thing backwards. Because <laughs> uh, I, I wanted to be able to give it without having to look at my notes. I wanted it all in my head. 
So the night before, I was so nervous. I walked around Providence all night. I just couldn't sleep. And I, the lecture was at 11 o'clock the next morning. And I go in the lecture and I stand up behind the lectern. And my hands are shaking so bad I had to put them in my pocket. And I didn't want the students to see how nervous I was. So the first line of my lecture was, President Kennedy was a pragmatist who did not impose moral solutions on problems. Pretty straightforward, right? So I'm standing there and I rip the, uh, the podium. And about five seconds to the hour, John comes in the back. And since all the students tend to sit in the back of the room, he moves up. And I swear, Mike, he's sitting 10 feet in front of me. <laughs> you know, and I'm like, President Kennedy, um, uh, <laughs> President Kennedy. Uh, uh. And, you know, there's some people who, when they face adversity, they find they dig down, they find that inner wealth of, of strength and they can lift cars. And I'm not one of those people. I hyperventilate. So I'm like standing there and I'm thinking, I've got to say something or it's over. My career is over. And so President Kennedy, uh, President Kennedy had no moral scruples. <laughs> now, I have no idea where that came from. I had no idea. It, it wasn't something I believed then. It's certainly not anything I believe now. I have no idea where it came from. But it saved my career because there was a student, a, a female student, she was sitting far enough away that she couldn't see the fear in my face, and she thought I was joking. So she laughed, and the whole class erupted in laughter. And then I settled in, and I gave the lecture, and, and John came up to me afterwards, and you know, he said, nice lecture. And that was, so that would have been his sophomore year. I didn't see much of him his junior year. But I'd see him around campus and say hi to him, but not much contact with him. Then in his senior year, I used to throw batting practice for the, the Brown baseball team. Um, and John played rugby. So we both had access to this varsity weight room, which, you know, compared to the types of weight rooms universities have now, this was like a closet with, you know, some, some machines in it. So we both were working out at the same time. We both work out at three o'clock, which is when I would always work out because that's when you play baseball. And John was working out because that's when you play rugby. And we just kind of, you know, we worked out separately. And then, you know, he started spotting for me and I started spotting for him. But and then one day he just came up to me in the library and he's like, Stevie, he always called me Stevie. He goes, Stevie, you know, we need to get some cardiovascular exercise. So let's play racquetball. And I said, yeah, great. You know, I'd love to play racquetball. And he says, you know, all Brown has are squash courts and squash is for pussies. So we've got to find, we've got to find a racquetball court somewhere. So he found a place in Seekonk, Mass, a giant fact gym, it's a, the size of a factory had you know, had a lot of weights and racquetball courts. And so that whole senior year, uh, you know, a couple of maybe once a week, sometimes twice a week, maybe once every three weeks, we'd hop in his car and we'd go over there and we'd lift weights, we'd play racquetball. And then, you know, afterwards we'd stop and get something to eat on the way back. And that's how I, when I really bonded with him and how I really got to know him. And then, you know, we just stayed in touch through all those years. Um, I helped him out at George. I was a contributing editor to George. I used to write some of his letters, um, to write some of his speeches, very few. And then John's the responsible for me having my job at the History Channel. I started coming in and doing, working as a talking head with them. And I got the bug. I wanted to do, do more than be a talking head. At this point, I'm living in England. So when they would fly me in to tape shows, they put me up for like a whole week so I wouldn't be jet lagged on camera. And for some reason, John was in town that whole week and didn't have anything to do. So we had dinner three nights in a row. I can't think of the restaurant up on the Upper West Side we went to. Carmine's. French restaurant. Oh, French? What's that? French? Yeah, it's right by the the, the subway station, like, was it? Cafe Street? Luxembourg? That's it. That's it. Which was across the street from my apartment of 32 years. Really? Cafe Luxembourg. We went there twice. Uh, and then we went to a restaurant down near his apartment the other night. But I, I guess I complained a little bit too much about, you know, wanting to be a host. I was told that there's two types of people in the network. There's historians and then there's talent. And I was definitely an historian. So I went in like, you know, I think it was a Thursday. I went in to, to, to tape something. And I get to the office and they're all scurrying around. And they're like, you won't believe what just happened. I'm like, what? John Fitzgerald Kennedy called. And he said he will do an exclusive interview on the History Channel on what would have been his father's 80th birthday. But he'd do it under one condition. I host the show. <laughs> the next morning, another mutual friend of ours, 
who was an agent at William Morris, uh, Mike Lubin, uh, contacted me and he represented me. And uh, the History Channel gave me my own show. And I had that show for 11 years and a whole series of shows after that. So John, you know, played a, a really important role in my life for, uh, for reasons that go beyond his celebrity status. And I struggled about writing a book about him because the one thing about John, you know, you you always protected his privacy. I always used to think like, what is it that I can offer him? And I think that one of the things is he knew I would never betray his, his confidence. You know, after he had been gone for a couple of years, I just, I didn't want him to be forgotten. I didn't want him to be remembered just as the hunk flux or the sexiest man alive. So I met with his executive assistant who said to me, if John knew he would be dead at the age of 38, he would want someone to write a book about him and he'd want you to write it. And that kind of broke the glass. And I started thinking about it seriously and and I hope I did the right thing. Um, I, I read the book and found it gripping. Um, I mean, I knew him a little bit. My sister knew him at Brown, watched him play sports in Central Park a few times. And and no, you were one of those gawkers, huh? <laughs> well, he, you know, he he was everywhere. I mean, he was really almost yeah. ubiquitous in New York City with his shirt off, right? Well, that's the thing about John. We, you know, we I played a couple of those games, and there's always shirts and skins. John was always skins. <laughs> he, he liked showing off, and thank God we liked he did. much. So uh, yeah, so I think there was no person better situated and more sensitive to the balance that would be needed to convey who he really was, why not divulging the kind of things that he wouldn't have wanted known? Yeah, I'll tell you one funny story. I wasn't out to John early on. I went to Fire Island for the first time. And while I was there, there's all these people running toward the beach. Yeah, I mean, just really running full speed in their flip-flops. And I'm like, what's going on? I said, John Kennedy Jr.'s playing uh, Frisbee on the beach. I'm like, ah, I don't think so. <laughs> but the next day I, I said, hey, John, I was just in Fire Island and all the guys were running because they thought you were playing Frisbee. And there was a pause. He says, Stevie, what were you doing in Fire Island? Not it myself. <laughs> what was he doing there? He wasn't. Oh, he wasn't there. Gotcha. No, it's just a, it was just rumor spread through Fire Island and the Pines right, right. that John was down there. And it's just it gives you an idea like these guys are just dropping everything and running. And I knew it was I knew he wasn't there. I think I knew where he was that weekend. For those of us who've never been a host or for those like me who are a host of something barely viewed. What's that like? How how do you feel about it? What's enjoyable? What's not so enjoyable? Well, it depends on what you're hosting. You know, the thing about, I, I always hosted on television. And, you know, it's just a big production with television. You got to get your makeup on and the cameras right and the lighting right. And there's long delays. So I didn't enjoy that part of it. But I got to meet all these fascinating people. I mean, you do some shows about topics you're not that interested in because you just need to cover a, a wide range of things. But fortunately, because I was working for the History Channel, I was doing topics in history and had some say in the types of topics that we would cover. Um, so I got to, you know, if I was curious about something, I could set up a show and interview people who would, you know, help me understand what something was about. I got to, you know, I interviewed um, uh, Bill Clinton, Dick Cheney, Henry Kissinger. Jeez, uh, who else did I interview? Lots of people. <laughs> Tom Brokaw a number of times. So I find hosting as a way of satisfying my own curiosity to be very rewarding. I found it also rewarding and helpful to me. I learned a lot from it because in television, you know, the worst answer someone can give you is, well, I have five points. It's like, no, you got about 35 seconds. <laughs> so uh, it was useful to develop that discipline to know the limitations of, and being able to say things clearly and concisely so that you can squeeze it into a short period of time. So that I found uh, rewarding and, and enjoyable. I would think, as an historian who's essentially made a living telling stories, yeah, that the fulfillment of learning and being able to share others' stories would be one of the highlights as well. 
yeah, I think of myself more as a storyteller than a historian. Right. And it's one of the things I learned when I started thinking about writing, you know, I think what the History Channel taught me was that there's a great interest in history. But most people remember history from the way they were taught it in high school. It was taught by their the, the football coach who was reading the chapter the day before the students were. And I find that there is a skill to telling historical stories in a way that will make people interested and maintain their interest. And my goal was always to sort of ignite that flame, always to sort of like ignite that flame of curiosity. So maybe they would watch one of my shows and say, well, that's really kind of interesting. You know, I'm going to read a book on this. Um, well, you make dry history accessible. Uh, I think history is never dry. I think the way that we've been taught to deal with it is dry. History is not about facts. It's not about memorizing facts. You know, history is the way you organize facts in such a way to make an argument. That's what history is. And it's the connective tissue between the, the facts that really informs the, the, the substance of what history is. And I think that, you know, I feel that I had to unlearn many of the things I learned in grad school. You know, in grad school, you're writing for other academics. And it took me a while to break out of that. So I no longer, uh, I no longer write for other people in the academy. I write for the same type of people who would watch my show. As a professional historian, as distinct from my role as an accidental gay historian, <laughs> how do you see the LGBT community in today's U.S. environment in particular? And do you have any advice for how we as queer people ought to be proceeding to get through this current period of sociopolitical turbulence? Uh, wow. <laughs> First, uh, I want to push back on the setup. I don't think that that you're an accidental historian. I think you're just as much of a historian as I am. You don't have to have professional training to be an historian. Uh, historians are discipline. And most of my favorite people who write history are not historians. So I, I just want to clarify that. Thank you. As for you know where we stand, it's a difficult, horrible time. All right. I mean, but I'm an optimist. We've been through far more difficult periods. I think of what we're going through now, this Trumpism is just a fever that's going to break, just like McCarthyism was a fever that broke. And I hope it ends soon. And as far, you know, for our community, I here's the way I, I view this. Okay, this maybe this may be dry history. But if you go back, say, 60 years, right? You go back to the 1960s. And you look at what's taken place uh, since the 1960s. I interviewed Bill Clinton one time, and I said to him, I, I was writing a book about Clinton and Newt Gingrich. I said to Clinton, what's the difference between you and Newt? And he said, if you want to understand the differences between me and Newt, you have to go back to the 1960s. If you think the 60s were generally good, chances are you're a liberal. If you think they're bad, chances are you're conservative. And Gingrich agreed with that. So I think that, what, so what happens? What is it about the 1960s and the legacy of the 60s that makes it such a, a dividing point? Well, there was a clear moral hierarchy in America back in, in, the, in, by, in the 1950s, right? White uh, heterosexual men were at the top with almost very, no co competition from women, no competition from African-Americans who were largely excluded from the marketplace, especially in the South. And, and we were considered freaks. So, you know, uh, we, you lose your job like that if, they, if you find out that you're a member of our community. So this, the civil rights movement is really the engine that's driven social change in America. And that the African-American freedom struggle sort of just created this domino effect. And, you know, then it led to the women's movement, the, the gay rights movement, and all these other empowerment movements. So that all together have chipped away at this hierarchy, this moral hierarchy. So white heterosexual men are no longer at the top of that hierarchy. Culturally, where I'm talking about, not, not economically, although economically they still are, but culturally, you know, they no longer get to define the rules about the way other people live. And the greatest legacy of the 1960s, I believe, is that it expanded the range of choices we have about how we live our lives. And those who embrace those choices and believe it's good tend to be liberal. Those who oppose those and want to create what I call a culture of authority tend to be conservatives. And I think what we're seeing now is sort of the death knell of this culture of authority. This is their last gasp. Demographically, culturally, they've lost. But they have access to the levers of power, to the courts now. 
they control one of the major political parties. So I think it's going to be a, a difficult struggle, but I think I think we'll end up on the on the positive side. But it's going to take a little time for that to work out. I don't know if you're aware that I did an interview with Barney Frank. You didn't happen to yeah. listen to that, did you? I listened to some of it. Yeah, I did. Um, it's one of the reasons I agreed to do this. Well, it's so funny because, you know, presuming your views were shaped before you heard that interview. Um, yeah. The amazing confluence. I've been teaching this for 30 years. <laughs> just just making sure. The, con- yeah. the confluence of his outlook and yours mm. is incredible. Mm. Because I asked him at the start, as a what would ordinarily be a final question, are you an optimist or a pessimist? You know, what do you think of our democracy right now? And his answer was incredibly similar with slightly mm. different features to yours. And his response was, I'm an optimist. He says, I'll tell you, would you rather have been a black man, a woman, or a LGBTQ person in 1960 or today? And I think what's going on right now is not that dissimilar from what happened after Stonewall. Most people in the U.S. don't know anybody trans. And the result is the strangeness, the uncomfortableness that comes from having that in their face in the news all the time is resulting in this pushback that you're talking about. And it may take 10 or 15 years, but we're going to end up in the same place with the transgender population that we did with LGTB. But this is, as you said, the kind of last gasp, a paroxysm by those in power yeah. who re- who resist change. Yeah, yeah I, I, I honestly believe that. The challenge is that, you know, they control a, a major political party. And because of the way our system is set up, they have an unusual amount of power. You know, they Republicans don't win presidential elections anymore. They don't win the popular vote. You know, the, let me see, the last one to win the popular vote was Bush in 2008. Uh, Bush lost the uh, popular vote 2004? in 2004. 2000? 2004. 2004. 2004. And, and he's the last one Republican to win the popular vote. You might say a lot of that was occasioned by the very effective use of an anti-gay strategy. In Ohio. Brought out voters, right? That's exactly right. It was in Ohio. They put an anti-gay marriage ballot on the uh, initiative on the ballot right. and used that to rally the e- Christian evangelicals uh, and turn Ohio to uh, to Bush. If Kerry had won it, he would have won the presidency. So and uh, the way our system is set up, you know, look at the, the composition of the Senate. The small rural states that are most conservative have an undue representation in the Senate because of the way it's set up. You know, the senator from uh, Montana has as many senators as California. And then the the influence of money in politics, all this has allowed this cultural minority, loud, vocal, cultural minority to exercise power that's far out of proportion to their numbers. And I think that's the real challenge. Of course, you know, this packing of the Supreme Court and a lot of these courts with these Federalist Society judges. And the gerrymandering and the rural-urban divide that, because yeah. of the Electoral College and the senator yeah. thing you mentioned, results in a lot of power for people who have very yeah. minimal representation. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I think that's the problem. It's, it's you look at demographic trends, you look at cultural values, just, you know, on issues of gay marriage, for example, it's been a revolution. But there is this group that is now a distinct minority exercises greater power than they would in a, in a, a democracy. Right. In a representative democracy, they have greater power. If we did away with this, with um, you know the Electoral College, I don't know if a Republican would ever win election again. Right. Well, we're at a point where they may have pushed too far. We'll find out. Things like abortion. Um, yeah. You know, that may end up resulting in defeat despite things being set up in their favor. But we're yeah. right at an inflection point for sure. Yeah. Well, that's a great example, too, is like there's a, an issue where 70% of the American public, including a majority of Republicans, support a woman's right to abortion. But here these people are like DeSantis in my home state, you know, are passing these highly restrictive abortion bills. That's going to come back to bite them in the ass when it comes to the ballot. It's happening already. But, you know, that's the way, again, the other 
thing about this is the reason why the Republican Party spiraled so far to the right is because of the way the primary system is set up. And these, you know, the most uh, organized, most powerful, more outspoken are these conservative, conservative white evangelicals who essentially control the primary system. Uh, so you have to cater to them in order to to win the nomination. And you do that even by taking issues that you know go contrary to what the broader public. It used to be that you'd run to the right or to the left in the primaries and to the center during the general election. Well, Republicans don't do that anymore. They run to the right and then run even further to the right general elections. You know, Democrats also have to find stronger candidates than they've had recently. Well, I, I think that's the real weak point of a two-party system. And it also leads us to a point where the people in office are no longer responsive to their constituents and don't have to be. That's right. They're responsive to the money and to the small minority of people who turn out to vote in primaries. Well, this has been fascinating. I really appreciate you taking the time out and the willingness to share what you've never shared before. I value our friendship, and we've had periods where we've been out of touch for a while, so I'm really happy we're back. I look forward to seeing you on my next trip to New York. Is there anything else you think I might have not have covered that we should uh, quickly add? Uh, no, I think we covered a lot of ground, and I'm glad we got to talk about you know the state of contemporary politics, which is a, a passion of mine. You know, this whole thing about um, I was talking about this paradigm that I did a piece for the Washington Post maybe five years ago called "Why Are White Men So Angry," and I laid out a lot of that in in that piece. If you're interested, I am. In, I'll, I'll ask you for it privately. Well, thanks again. Let's hope it comes out to your satisfaction and I'll keep you posted. That's great. It was a lot of fun, Mike. Thanks for having me. I'm glad you're doing this too. Thank you, Steve. Take care. The podcast you've been listening to is produced by Mike Balaban and Tom Walker, recorded and researched by Mike Balaban, with editing and music from Henry Lay.